Hey there, I'm Zoe Duff, and this is Don't Say Maybe. We all have dreams and plans for what we'd like to achieve in our lives. Frequently, life gets in the way, and we all find obstacles that slow us down or completely derail our hopes. We say, oh, maybe someday, if things change. Some people don't see obstacles. They see challenges, and they find a way around, over, or through things that stop most of us. This podcast is about finding those people who have been successful in several areas of their lives. We'll find out how they got past their challenges and what the new ones are. Philadelphia Publishing is a sponsor, and they run a terrific event called the Double Dog Dare, or Writer's Open Mic. People sign up to read stories, poetry, and the audience's choice's best writing wins a $25 gift card for a local restaurant. Canadian writers and artists making enough money to feed themselves is difficult, especially at first. We are told to get a real job. The applause of our peers at these events is inspiring, but Philadelphia Publishing chose the prize so that the winner can feel the success of making enough to feed themselves, at least once. Small steps are important to keeping those dreams in sight. We will have an audio clip of the more recent winner reading her short story in today's episode of Don't Say Maybe. Why did this strike me as being something to chat about? Success seems like luck to us as we observe it in others, and discovery seems quite sudden when, in fact, long years of hard work are most often in place before discovery occurs. Don't Say Maybe is here to inspire others to reach for their dreams and to honor the achievements of lesser-known people, the people next door that are working on being the best they can be. What makes me a good host for this podcast? Well, I'm usually in the middle of something because I think it needs to happen, and nobody else is readily available. I get into a fair bit of crazy situations based on that alone. I also am frequently asked, how do you do it all? I have eight children, five, soon to be seven, grandchildren, two loving partners, an elderly parent, a full-time job, a part-time business, ten books of various genres in print, and am spokesperson for an advocacy group for which I also act as board coordinator. How do I do it? My father told me at an early age that there was no reason that I couldn't do or be anything I wanted in my life. I was capable of any dream I chose if I put my mind to it. He was sometimes the voice of reason or caution, but always proudly cheering me on. How do I do it? It never occurs to me that I can't. A change of direction or focus is sometimes necessary but the dream in some variation is always possible. Am I financially well off? Well, no. I am tremendously wealthy in experience, in family, and in being able to do the things that I love, most often with those that I love. I'm currently finishing up another novel and allowing myself to enjoy this adventure in podcasting. We will be posting bi-weekly from Victoria, B.C., I'll begin highlighting and interviewing the stars in my own horizon and am happy to take your recommendations of people who inspire you in your life. If you find that you like what I'm up to, and I hope you do, like, share, get the notifications, subscribe, message us with comments and ideas for future topics and guests. So today's interviewee is someone I know very well and I'm often very hard on. I demand a lot of her and have no qualms about berating her for her mistakes. Yeah, that would be me. 
I started off life the child of a lay minister and career social worker. Dad was a busy, multitasking example. Mum was an event coordinator extraordinaire and craft show entrepreneur who eventually became a successful florist. Lots of things to be learned there. I took piano lessons, which I didn't like very much. Singing lessons, which I liked better because I took the instrument with me and achieved excellent grades in school. I also wanted to be a pop star, and I also wanted to go to university and be an archaeologist or an interpreter for the UN. When I was 12, my Nancy Drewish novella was published by my school library, complete with a cover that I did with pastels. When I was 16, several of my poems were published in a youth contest in the Herald, a church-oriented magazine in the U.S., I had at least one poem published every year for the next two, and then I was too old for youth contests. When I was in high school, I was selected for the Student Leadership and Instructional Corps. We were trained to do peer tutoring and act as junior substitute teachers for the lower grades. I was editor of the school newspaper that was posted in the glass cases of the library. My interviews of staff and students gained some notoriety for the bizarre questions I would ask. The teachers went on strike the year I was in grade 12, and I posted the contract so that we, the senior students, would have facts as it was likely going to cost us our graduation. The library took it down and fired me. I printed it in the other one, an underground student newspaper created by myself, and handed out 200 copies. The student council gave me a grant and replaced my funds. I have many stories of unbelievable stupid getting in the road of my dreams and just not letting that stop me. I wasn't a popular kid growing up and was teased a lot about being chubby. Maybe that gave me tougher skin? Not sure. I do know that I have been discouraged, afraid, and cried over the challenges and disappointments. I've made mistakes, bad choices, and trusted people who let me down or misused my love. Shit happens. You either roll with it or you let it bury you. Nobody is going to bury me. Eventually, you learn to be a bit more cautious or pay attention to the warning flags in personal interactions. Eventually, it begins to go your way. I try to be happy about that and not worry about the next load of stupid to come my way. And here I sit, many years later. My day job involves speaking, reading, in several languages and international interactions, as well as people searching and genealogy. I sing solos for church sometimes, but I am a shower pop star and a lullaby diva with a good-sized fan club. Writing survived as a thing I do in my day job for my business and for publication. That was where the drive was the strongest, and even today makes my heart the happiest. With all this going on in my life, the first thing I had to learn was time management. Take a course, read a book, develop your own strategies. I'm always looking for a new idea to make myself more efficient. I love that there's an app for just about every part of your life these days. One of my favorite authors is Stephen King, and in his book called On Writing... He talks about setting aside a consistent bit of time, 10 minutes, half an hour, whatever, every day, write, 
even if it is a grocery list, train yourself to write every day. That's exactly how I have 10 books written and in print. Now I'm going to try to do the same for going to the gym. If you want it badly enough, you will do it. King also gave a bit of a writing prompt and said he'd review anyone who followed through on it. This prompt gave me the idea I needed to tie together my first novel. It was based on diary entries from my years as a battered wife. Even threatened with more beatings, I never stopped singing, and I never stopped writing. Stubborn, yes, but the song bursts forth, and the words must find the page. It's just who I am. No one could beat that out of me. Another thing that I've frequently done is sought out the information that I needed for a project or create something by finding a free or installment version of it. One can't always afford to go to university, but I've taken courses by correspondence, and now we have free courses on iTunes and through Coursera. The internet is amazing. Be a lifelong learner, and don't be afraid to take a new direction when it presents itself. I've always found that supporting other people's successes and goals never detracts from your own, even if it appears to be in competition. Perhaps you aren't ready for that success yet, or perhaps your path is slightly different. Good fortune, like love, is not pie. There is always enough to go around. Besides being graceful, could be noticed by someone that remembers that and you later. Network, network, network. I'm fairly easy going with the people around me, but a complete tyrant with myself. I'm rarely happy with efficient my efficiency or product. Always room for improvement. As I grow older, I'm learning to be kinder with myself and allow time to explore and enjoy the world. Drive and determination have to be tempered with compassion for yourself, too. Remember that we are all works in progress, and be sure to honor your progress. It is important to observe and to listen to what goes on around you. Take the time to understand another's perspective. You may not agree, but it could well be fodder for your next novel or an essential piece of information for an unsuspected incident. Show up for your life. Be present in every moment. Don't get stuck in the day, in, day out, what's on Facebook, Twitter, the news today that's depressing. Free yourself and let your dreams flow. So what do you want for your birthday? Well, nothing, because no one has my taste and it would be too expensive. No, don't let the stupid stop you. If money, time, age, energy, whatever else is not to be considered, what do you want from your life? What one thing could you do today to step toward that? Guess what you do tomorrow? The next thing you could do to step toward it. And that's how I do it all. And now we double dog dare you to stand up to the mic and share your writing at Gorgeous Coffee in Victoria, B.C. Philida Publishing presents the winner of the August 25th Writers Open Mic, Edie Taylor, reading her original short story. The sinkhole was all over the news when it happened. We aren't sinkhole country here. We've never had one and certainly not one so big. It was big even for a sinkhole. Geologists were all too happy to inform us. A marvel, one of them said to me. I've never seen anything like it. 
chasm loomed in my neighbor's house had been, the geologist deemed I didn't have to leave. Despite the size of the sinkhole, when it said when I raised my concerns about continuing to live next to a bottomless pit, it's not expanding and we don't expect it to. You'll be completely safe. I was having my doubts now. First night after the sinkhole formed, I had been struggling to sleep, staring up at my ceiling while thinking about how easily that black hole could swallow me up, make me disappear in the space between breaths like the Marigold family. Jacob, Marissa, Emma, Caleb, Josie. Five people. Gone. I was half-heartedly considering making my peace with the universe, just in case, when the rumbling started. It was powerful. It jolted me awake as I leapt out of bed, adrenaline shooting up my spine, wrapping claws around my brain and squeezing all rational thought out of it. Forget this, I thought. I don't want to die. I sprinted to my front door, prepared to leave my house to whatever cruel god decided random holes opening up in the ground was an acceptable natural disaster. But as my fingers touched the doorknob, it stopped. I don't know what possessed me to go back to my bedroom where I could see the sinkhole clearly from my window. I pulled back the sheer curtain and looked at the thing directly. It looked like an open mouth, and it felt like your toes slipping on a sudden drop-off in the ocean. And suddenly, the ground lurched under my feet. I sucked in a breath. When was the last time I breathed? But the ground was still rising slowly, steadily. I dove to catch a glass of water that was about to be jostled off my bedside table. And just as quickly as it began, the ground receded again, and my fig trees were whipping around like there was a sharp breeze, and a low whistling sound was coming from the chasm. I didn't sleep that night. The next day I called in sick to work and booked an appointment with a psychiatrist. We lived in a small enough town that he could have me in that afternoon. As I waited outside his office, tapping my foot anxiously, I found myself avoiding looking at the round metal garbage can discreetly tucked away under a small table. If I stared too hard at it, it started to look like the sinkhole. I got a prescription for Xanax, which turned out to be two tiny white pills with 0.25 printed on one side and indent on the other. I was given explicit instructions to cut them in half and to only take one a night. That's probably fine, I thought to myself. It's been a long couple of days. I just need a good, few nights of good sleep and I'll be better. I took the first half pill that evening. I fell asleep 15 minutes later. I jolted awake, wide awake, and sat up in my bed. My alarm clock read 3.41. I groaned and rubbed my eyes. The meds were supposed to keep me asleep all night. I was about to lay down and try and get comfortable again when a rumbling started. At first I thought it was probably nothing, just some neighbor kids driving some noisy car around trying to look cool. Then the sound cut through my Xanax addled brain and reached my lizard brain. This rumble wasn't from here. It was like nothing I'd ever heard before. It didn't just come from the ground, it came from the core of the earth. It shook me and a cold sweat broke out on my forehead. I got out of bed and with a shaking hand I pulled my bedroom curtain back and stared at the sinkhole. It wasn't expanding. But it was moving. It's hard to describe now after the fact. At the time, it made perfect sense, but when I looked back on it weeks later, I couldn't find words to describe what I saw there. In any case, the sinkhole was moving. The more I stared at it, the more that emptiness seemed to open up. I gasped in a breath after a few moments. I'd forgotten to breathe again. The sinkhole was moving, and something was coming out of it. I opened my window, all fear gone, as I leaned out onto the sill. It was dark out, and the streetlights were flickering for some reason, but I could see the distinct shape of something coming out of it. Whatever the thing was, it had long fingers and claws like razor-sharp razor stalagmites as it dragged itself out of the sinkhole, gouging valleys in the road, cutting through the pavement like butter its body was revealed. The whole 
creature, if you can call it that, is also hard to describe. In the moment, I knew exactly what it was, but every day the image of it fades from me a little more. I know I could smell it, even from my bedroom, that it smelled like hot roads. Whatever served as eyes for the thing didn't glow like you would expect, but they were compound eyes, and you could see each segment moving individually. It almost looked like its ribs were exposed, and it breathed like its lungs were a giant pair of fireplace bellows. Its breath must have been hot, because as it breathed over what remained of the marigold's front lawn, the grass shriveled and died, seemingly withering into itself, leaving only barren dirt. And when it looked at me, the only thought in my mind was my liege. I don't know how I ended up getting away. I have a hard time remembering those next few days after I made eye contact with it. I have flashes of memory sometimes, but just like its exact appearance, they're hard to describe. All I know for sure is I was the only survivor. The town I used to live in is now a hot, dry crater. I think the official report said it was an underground fire. They never found any bodies. People just disappeared. No bodies, no blood, no DNA. Just a crater with a sinkhole at the center of it. The worst part? I can still feel its influence on me. I can still feel it in the back of my mind telling me to dig in the backyard of my new house. And I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to last. And this has been Don't Say Maybe. This is Zoe Duff, and we'll see you again next time.